0: a platform for supporting the collective inquiry into deep impact. As a part of the Poetry of Impact, the Journey to Impact podcast brings to life the ebb and flow inherent on the path of impact, illuminating the interior journey of the hearts and minds of today's top leaders in impact. Here, you'll hear the intimate stories of those who push forward to overcome self-limitations and societal barriers, to co-create a world where one day all people and planet can thrive together.
1: This is Gino Borges here with uh, Joel Solomon for the Fireside Chat called Journey to Impact. And thank you for joining us. The purpose of the Journey to Impact series is to actually go on and explore the personal side of people's relationship between resources and and their own life. Uh, Some of us have been blessed with extreme abundance, and a lot of us have also been blessed with an enormous amount of trust from others to... allocate money for positive purposes, such as social and environmental outcomes that outcomes. we all want to live under. And we're really fortunate to have this guest today It really epitomizes that uh, theme and is also Exhibit A in a lot of ways for a lot of what is seem seemingly starting to trend. Uh, Joel's been working on for 20, maybe even 30 plus years. Um, so we look forward to going over that journey with Joel poking um, poking a little bit at his past and a little bit into the future and seeing what he's working on now. A little bit of a bio on, on Joel. And Joel is the founder of Renewal Funds, which is Canada's largest mission venture capital firm and an early B Corp with $98 million under management in organics and environmental tech mostly. And it's currently actually um, shaping up and ending their their latest fund as well i'm sure that will come up in some capacity how i really came to admire joel um, at a whole nother level was when i fell in love with his new book uh the clean money revolution reinventing power purpose and capitalism which is essentially a personal memoir on his journey to impact so um a lot of those Narrative attributes will emerge today, and we'll explore a little bit more of that as well. He's also the founding member of Social Venture Circle, which is an organization of entrepreneurs and impact investors, and also board chair at Hollyhock on Cortez Island, which is one of my favorite places on earth. Um, If you haven't been, um, please find a reason to go. You actually don't even need a reason to go. When you arrive, the reason will emerge, I would say, but um, Joel is not only... uh, uh, in terms of formal capacity at Hollyhock, but uh, Joel enjoys uh, just hanging around too, uh, doing gardening and helping in the kitchen and, and so forth. So, yep. perhaps one of the most humble, high-achieving, impact investing social entrepreneurs that you will meet, um, and definitely has opinions on the space. And we look forward to sort of sort of diving in. So, welcome, Joel. And Joel's re-examining his his video right now just to make sure his head doesn't get trimmed
0: I am getting a pin. I got oh, it cool cool well welcome Joel thank you uh yeah. it's a pleasure this is a unique uh, type of interview and I'm, I'm really happy about it
1: yeah for sure well like as, as I mentioned to you early on this series has, incl- has included folks like Jed Emerson uh, and John Fullerton which are also uh, you know pioneers in the space as well and has has many others that are actually, in the last two days, I've gotten a few others that have asked um, to be interviewed as well and in part begin because of that personal angle. And we'll actually start well, there, Joel. And instead of, instead of beginning with where you are right now, um, sort of take us back to that moment where you realized early on in your life that um, something was something was either a little off with you or your relationship with the system. Or with the system, and sometimes we don't know what's what. At times, we don't know whether we're off, the system's off, or our relationship with uh, the system. So maybe you can sort of start with where that that tipping point was for you uh, on on your personal journey.
0: Yeah, we can talk about we can talk about all three of those. Uh, however, the good news was being born to some parents that had very positive influences on me. My mother gets the primary credit. My father was the entrepreneur. He was the child of a, of a Jewish immigrant uh, that had a, escaped depression in, in Russia and ended up in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, put on a boat at age 10 um, and got to Cousins in Atlanta. Ku Klux Klan marched around their neighborhood and scared them up to Chattanooga. Um, and that's so how I got to Chattanooga, Tennessee. And then my parents met on a blind date to the 1952 Democratic Convention, where my my father's congressperson, then senator, was running for president. And, um, of course, that's become a very – the the idea of running for president is a big deal these days, of course, and has become a bigger deal. But in any case, uh, Estes Kefaufer lost to Adelaide Stevenson. In 52, in 56, he became the VP nominee, but they lost to Eisenhower both times. But at, on the last night of the Democratic Convention, my father had a friend in Chicago that got him a date with my mother. And so they went to the convention. So I was born in a political family, business family. But then my mother is the interesting part here. Uh, recently, we went on her 89th birthday. It just that was coincidence for her to receive a Lifetime Achievement Award in photography. And she uh, back in those days, she was 23. My father was 32 and they were considered old for marriage. So they were both. I guess my father in particular was uh, on the pathway and they had to date by 16 hour car car trips between Chicago and Chattanooga. But my mother made the decision to get married, to get out of whatever she was, you know, her context and ended up in Chattanooga, Tennessee, which was quite a thing for a Chicagoan and moved into a clan, you know, a Jewish clan. Um, there are a lot of stories to tell about, but just one is like, and including Uncle Harold, who was the gynecologist, you know, so it was like the whole, you know, you, she she went in and got enveloped by a, uh, a family. <laughs> Any case, uh, she had careers and uh, early on in that, and she was influenced by Betty Friedan and early feminism. And she saw the world non-normally and had a lot of questions about it. And so I got raised in an environment where there were a lot of questions asked or uh, things that weren't quite felt comfortable with. And we're talking about Jim Crow era in the South. I'm going to assume people are familiar with what that means. with colored bathrooms, colored wash- uh, water fountains. And my family had gotten into the movie theater business and owned the Colored Movie Theater. Um, so that was just, that was part of the milieu. She chafed at the bit about all that, um, ended up working for the Agency for International Development under Kennedy, and was the first, go- I think, government recruiter on black campuses across the South. And back then, mm. AID was considered a highly noble go help the world kind of a thing. So she had careers and um she caused me to look at the world in more ways than what seemed to be the prescribed pathway. There was eventually a day after university where I was called to the boardroom of the uh shopping mall business. It had grown from it went from movie theaters to shopping malls. And um the elders of the firm—they'd uh, been bought by a New York firm. So this was some of the New York elder Jews, and my father and a couple and his cousins. And it was, "We're ready for you to come to the family business." It was a little bit of, "Someday this can all be yours." You know, is that yeah. sort of a yeah. moment? But I was already disaffected by the 60s. Now we're in the 60s. So Vietnam War, the Chicago police riots outside the convention, the Kent State. I was. I had gone, and I had also been sent to military school because the public schools were considered so poor, and my father had graduated from one of the military schools. So I had a lot of confusing forces that were pushing pushing in on me. And what happened from that, I've, I've forgotten what question you asked me now, but, uh, for, but but from that came a lot of questioning and curiosity and disgruntled. So I went into a, a long period through adolescence and teenage and off to university when um, I was not very happy. Uh, I had a good time some of the time, but I, I, I was I think I was probably mildly depressed. Mm -hmm. and uh, very confused about the pathway to go into being a shopping mall developer. So my mother, who became a photographer later, traveled the world, and I got to see a lot of uh, all levels of society, all different kinds of circumstances. And so those are the seeds that got me to bust out. And I'll stop there. Yeah. And uh, then – so – So, so let's
1: um, continue about that shopping uh, mall moment because it is sort of a pivotal point in your book um, in terms of your storyline. What happened after you got offered the golden keys? And I mean, where? Like, I mean, what was your response? And then where did you go from from there?
0: I very nervously said, "I'll think about it." And I got myself out of there uh, and decided I needed time to think about my life. And I took off on a journey. And so through my post-university time, the, uh, the mid-20s, early and mid-20s, I started experimenting mm-hmm. in many of the ways. I, You know, that'd be a code language people could understand some of. But that experimentation was also... How can I get myself grounded? What really matters? And I what I came to was uh, maybe I saw I saw a post for a gardening course, Mm -hmm. an exotic gardening course in California. At the time, I was living, working at ski resorts in in the in the uh, Wyoming, Iowa, uh, Idaho border, Driggs, Idaho, for those who might know that area. But um, I saw this five-week gardening course in California, and California held sort of a mystical, uh, well, maybe I can find the answers there. So I went to the Farallones Institute, now the Occidental Center for Arts and Ecology, and there was a garden five-week garden course with three of us. And I was exposed to uh, Rudolf Steiner principles, biodynamics, Alan Chadwick, a uh, combination of uh, French-intensive biodynamic um, uh, uh Appropriate technologies, uh, home scale, build a solar bread baker and compost toilets and and all this kind of stuff, and then the swimming hole and uh, now I was able to find out what California hippydom might be like. Uh, so so how far do I go? I, I, you know this next part of the story, so I'll I'll tell it, which is I met some. Go ahead.
1: Well, so yeah, was did, it at guys. this point, what, just so people can follow the storyline, are your parents – is your father still alive, and did you inherit money at this particular point in time, or was the inheritance later?
0: My father was still alive. He ended up going into Jimmy Carter's government, and that's where he was when I was out there. And I did get a phone call one day saying, I've uncovered a lot of scandal at the General Services Administration. They're going to be Senate and House hearings, and I could really use your, your support. And that was that last reeling me back in, reeling me back in. So that was too much to pass up on. I got a I got a job a couple of days a week on an organic farm in West West Virginia Panhandle, and then several days a week we'd put on a suit and go to the General Services Administration <laughs> and sit with my. Fo- we sold vegetables on the street two blocks away. Also, a couple of days. Yeah. So I was doing the double life and. Uh, but the intrigue, I actually had worked in Jimmy Carter's campaign, and I knew all the White House staff. You know, they were all 28, 30, 32. I was uh, 25, 27 by then. So you can see like these, these contrasting kinds of influences. Um, I watched my father get uh, asked to resign. and Or they floated a newspaper story that he was going to be asked to resign, so he went in and resigned. But he asked for... He said he'd do it in a couple months. He'd leave in a couple months. So he went and did all the Senate and House testimony, and put everything in the record. Uh, and then he left. So from there, it was time for me, really, to I, I I bailed, and I had met people in California that had moved to Cortez Island, about a hundred kilometers up the coast from Vancouver. This was pretty remote and exotic. And Cortez Island at the time was six hundred people. That hadn't been long that they'd had a ferry and electric power. And uh, I ended up at a place called Cold Mountain Institute just after it had folded. And it was a relative of Esalen. It was a brother-in-law of one of the founders mm. of Esalen. But they were doing three and nine month deep, deep retreats. Uh, back then you could go a lot further even in your uh, taking a part of the human construct and pushing people deeper experimentally and stuff. That was over. But I got hooked in with a bunch of mystics and activists and um, human potential movement people. And that uh, anchored me. I'm going to finish next month, 25 years as the Hollyhock board chair. Wow. So that is evoking. (laughs) uh, Let's say there's a lot. I'll be 65 this year. Yeah. Many emotions, many, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of stuff coming up, so to speak
1: yeah for sure. for sure. And so where did um, so there is a moment um, so your family still has these shopping centers at this Good time I money. Movie. So 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 you're still in the moneyed family and there becomes a moment in your life where that money transfers to your balance sheet. Um, yeah. So to take us through there and some of the um, internal reconciliations that occurred as a result of that inheritance.
0: Okay, back to that story. Uh, the first was a fifty thousand dollar payout that came from a real estate partnership that I knew very little about, and I called a friend from the uh, uh, who was a peace activist and a and a, a justice worker from the like uh, come from religious and spiritual traditions, and I had met him and I called him. He was the only person I could think of, and I called him and I said, "I've inherited some dirty money." can you give me, is there a business that I could invest in so I can translate transfer that money into something I believe in? Shopping malls were dirty because they were paving paradise, they were monoculturing, they were yeah. you know, changing, changing the face of things, killing off downtowns and all that. Um, so the first 25, I, I went to the people that had started, Holly, had started Hollyhock a little bit later and I asked them if they needed some money. And they, of course, you know, like, <laughs> come here, young man. And they uh, accepted my $25,000, and I became the first partner after the original founders. Uh, second thing I did was Chuck Mathai, who was this character, uh, did revolving loan funds work for uh, low income people to buy their trailer parks or their apartment buildings. But he did know a little bit about some social enterprise kinds of things. And so he sent me to uh, – he said he's got some pals that are trying to start a nonprofit in New Hampshire to prove that family farms matter and have a role. I said, that sounds great. and, they, and they, Oh, and they're making yogurt. They've got five cows. They're making yogurt, and they're selling enough of it. They want to buy some more cows. So I, I said, "Okay, I'll put twenty the other twenty five thousand in there," <clears throat> and the yogurt was organic, and it was old European style, and there was no organic yogurt in North America, and um, that sounded okay. That's that's clean enough. Uh, yeah. And and um, so I wrote the twenty five thousand dollar check as a loan, and then I got a call before they cashed the check, and Gary Hirschberg was uh, called me up, and he said. Uh, uh, we're selling too much yogurt. We can't be a not-for-profit. We'll never raise the capital. We're going to be a for-profit. Would you invest in our company? And that was Stonyfield yogurt. And uh, you can tell there was no. You could claim I could claim instinct, but that's about there wasn't any smarts involved in that. That was just sheer get this money some somewhere that I could be proud of. So anyhow, that led to lots more things, but that was the fifty thousand. In uh, in the mid '80s, after I had uh, gotten involved and stayed maybe five years on Cortez, I'd gone off. I'd caretaked a orca research laboratory for a, the guy that brought the whale campaign to Greenpeace. Uh, some of the original Greenpeace founders were involved in Hollyhock, also. So I got into to that mix, and uh, my father died, and uh, he died from a genetic kidney disease which I inherited. And that had a big influence on all of this because I was diagnosed with you can die. You could die very soon. You could live longer. There's nothing you can do about it. And that Hmm. led me to think about food and what am I eating and read labels and organics and all of that kind of stuff. So I had the early experiment. Now I inherited $3 million of illiquid real estate tied up in partnerships and um seemed like a vast vast fortune it was worth more than it is today but it was not that vast not that vast people on some of these people on this call would know that um, but it was a lot for me and i went into a uh, spiritual crisis yep am i am i going to hold this am i do i own it am i good? and of course i succumbed but what i did in the meantime i had heard about one of the early philanthropic and issues of money organizations called mm-hmm. Threshold Foundation. Mm-hmm. And uh, Josh Mailman, Wayne Silby, um, all kinds of interesting characters. Ramdas eventually joined it. There were a number of, um, a lot of very interesting people there. And I had, when I'd been told about it earlier, I'd said, no way am I going to go hang out with a bunch of rich people talking about money issues. No way. Um, but I then was ready. And it had a lot of esoteric practices. It was kind of like the Hollyhock Threshold match was actually more closer than I realized at the time. Um, But I joined Threshold Foundation. uh, SVN, Social Venture Network, spun out of that. And I believe that Tonic and many, many of the organizations people are involved with today kind of somebody was disgruntled that SVN wasn't doing investing. So let's start Investor Circle. (laughs) We need to work on corporate issues, so BSR came out of that. We need to work at university at business schools, so Net Impact, you know. And so I watched yeah. a lot of that yeah. unfold. I got influenced by it. Uh, it became, it became the uh, the circuit on which I got multidimensional learning.
1: Hmm. Um. um. So where did this sort of, it seems like this all sort of set you up to, um, for what's currently called impact investing, but where did it crystallize where all of a sudden you became more occupied with finance in general as a vehicle for creating particular outcomes? Like where did that light go off? Because at that point in time, there was really very minimal conversation going on, about capital, um, oh, for the most uh, part, just being okay. anonymous and neutral and innocent sort of in the world. But you sort of intuitively dirty knew clean. that there's dirty and clean capital. Um, but, um, how did that sort of all crystallize in the, like the last sort of 20, 30 years is which how people sort of know you today as a guy that's moves money through the system in impactful ways, impact. not just for yourself, but also more, probably more importantly, and a much larger scale for others. Um, and so, where did that sort of all crystallize and start working?
0: I'd like to squeeze this in, which is uh, uh, we we have we're going to finish in about two weeks with our current fund, and we will uh, go over a hundred million this time. And there's some symbolic importance to that. So now it's two hundred million, um, which is we could get into later, but. Nonetheless, um, threshold on the philanthropic side, SVN on the entrepreneur and investment side, and running around SVN and hearing the stories that were like some of the most exciting kinds of you, the heroic stories of Ben and Jerry's ice cream and Stonyfield yogurt and, and uh, Seventh Generation and many, many companies that were launched by people that were freaks and uh, outliers and uh, and true believers. What were the influences that caused them? I we could get that's another a lot yeah. of different ones. But I got to sit at the knee and hear the stories and watch those stories. And so I knew that there was a world that was. I mean, I had hoped there was clean money. I still don't know if there's clean money. <laughs> it's all got, it's all got blood dripping off of it. There, there yeah. you know, you, there's cleaner money there's definitely cleaner, but I don't know about clean, but we'll, we can come back to that if it's interesting, but I did get surrounded by an ecosystem that, that had me believing this was an exciting place to be. There were opportunities you could have achievement and accomplishment and satisfaction. I was, you know, I was naive, a little bit naive and innocent about it too, but 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 I could see that there were pathways in which I could use what I was born into and really what I'd been trained at the knee of a a successful entrepreneur and that it was about the values and the meaning and the purpose of what you brought to money. You didn't have to do it the same way. And you could look at every dollar as a vote, as a consciousness choice, as a moral choice as a a way to support things that matter. So I got very excited about the uh, potential of money. I was mostly hanging out in the rest of my life with activists and uh, dropouts and spiritual people and and that kind of thing. And I got on fire about the idea that – could you call it the reform of money, the repurposing of money, the the, uh, the, the, – like it was a fairly – it was a somewhat, if not fairly, if not completely neutral substance by itself. It's what you did with it and how you did with it. And so that led me down a path. And then later the, the language evolved and the terms got invented. And uh, I just rode that wave over the years because I turned into a fascinated, uh, fi- infinitely fascinated by people and relationships and stories. And so I followed and got involved in many of the networks and learned the trade.
1: Yeah. So do you feel like there's um, versus conventional finance, which is pretty much how probably your family's shopping malls were siloed? um, Sort of take us, I mean, part of the appeal for me in the impact investing space is frankly, the people that I meet are just much more interesting than the one dimensional people trained in finance per se. And it's interesting, a lot of people in impact investing actually. Um, don't come from finance backgrounds. They actually have to learn the finance. Um, yeah. They actually come more with the intentionality, the activist leaning or the progressive bent. Um, and then, and then they sort of back into the finance. Um, you know, there's always that sort of that push and pull. Maybe sort of touch on how your book, uh, the clean money revolution that just came out recently, you um, provides I mean for me it provided a confirmation that the way I can exist in the world I can pretty much blur all the silos between professional and personal nonprofit profit and just say look this is an integration of I'm this is all about us being all in a relationship okay. with earth this extension that Western civilization put into motion called money as a form of exchange a seeming value and um, And that's what sort of keeps me going is that you meet really interesting people versus if they, and you meet really interesting people. And so your book gives us a a license and a permission to say, you be you and your group be your group and realize that there's no one way to do this. Um, In fact, your chapter nine sort of illustrates, um, and I feel like it's the most indelible chapter in the book, that says, look, until you realize some sense of who you are and who you want to be in the world, then back into the techniques and the strategies and the networks and and so forth. So maybe just sort of unpack um, what your aim was with uh, the clean money revolution.
0: That was very well said. I think I'm going to have to switch and interview you now and ask you questions <laughs> about it. Uh, well, let's go back to, I had needed a philosophical base to understand money. And so I concluded as the simple, which is it's extraction from the planet or from people. Commodified and turned into a, a, a symbol for exchange. And there's nothing like you can extract in super damaging ways, obviously. Um, But it's inherently there to be molded, tuned, refined. I mean, send money to the therapist, basically. Uh, (laughs) Send money on a personal growth journey. Like money can, can and should be an expression of love. Like what a powerful substance to share it, to give it, to exchange it can be a very beautiful thing. The loss of self-awareness, of, of deep understanding of life, having a point of view that, that goes this way, causes us to be extremely unconscious with it or to buy into dominant belief systems about it that have been created. And then it becomes a commodification and the exploitive part of it gets kind of wrapped in and forgiven because it's just the way it is. So I'm supposed to make money and then I'm supposed to make more money. And then I'm supposed to make more money. Well, I, I, I was, I'm going to go back to my mother and say, somehow, you know, I think she planted the seeds and then some of these other influences that no, I'm not going to, I don't need to accept that. And money's a sacred substance. Like what's embodied in it came from people and places and I have to re-sacralize that substance. Now, for me, because I'm active in the world, and I'm engaged, and I'm obviously imperfect, and got all kinds of contradictions that I live with, um, I love the art and practice of generating success. And money's a great tool to judge that with. And I love seeing innovation and meaningful products and services and companies happen or activism, personal development stuff. You know, all this, it's a fuel that can turbocharge uh, what you believe in. So I began to at least convince myself, rightly or wrongly, that as a spiritual practitioner, with this profane substance, what a great ministry, so to speak, or what a great Hmm. life work to help money do things that are deeply positive and meaningful and maybe that rebalance injustice and maybe create alternatives to trashing the Garden of Eden that we live in. So once I got hooked on that little messianic tainted uh idea and you look around and you realize well there's anti-capitalists and there's people that just don't want to think about it and there's people that but the love of money and infinitely growing it and whatever privileges and power that seems to give to one go to church go to church go to temple go to the mosque on the weekend, forgive yourself for everything you did all week and what your money's doing while you're sitting there. (laughs) Where's your money right now? It's got your name on it. Like, where is it? What's it doing to people and places? That kind of thinking, I mean, if you let yourself go there, uh, you need a few guardrails. You just spin off and go be a monk on the mountainside. Unless you that's what you want to do. But but I I did find it to be a really kind of, I guess, a spiritual practice uh, that was very practical, tangible and in the mix. And I don't have to preach to everybody or I don't have, you know, but I'm making choices all the time with money and I've lost track of what you asked me, but if that's no,
1: just good. Well, You know, I mean, you bring up sort of embedded sure. in that is, is at some point you had to realize like how much is uh, on the material plane. People do have to ask themselves how, like, what is enough? enough. How, yeah. Like, I mean, how, how much is enough? I, um, I mean, how do you reconcile with uh, that question? Because obviously you do have the capacity to earn a lot more. You do earn something. Um, and you do have, Um, a body of assets yourself, just sort of curious on how you sort of navigate that notion of enough, because I know it's coming up more and more in communities of wealth.
0: Well, you, I think you have a moral obligation to ask how much is enough. And then you have a moral obligation to ask, and what are you going to do with it? And if you're going to make more, you have a higher bar to meet. Why are you going to make more? Okay, because it's fun, because it's satisfying, because you have more power, you can have more tools, you can you can do good in the world. Like the common explanation is because I'm gonna give it away, I'm gonna do something good. All too few people actually follow through with that. And what they tend, to, what we tend to do is we create a foundation and then it goes out and wrecks havoc across the landscape with its investment side. So it can give away a little bit of the earnings to work on solving the damage that we just created. So if you just think about the money system in a very practical kind of way, um, why would like give me a billion dollars, and and I will have it out. Give me name your amount of time. You can give me a weekend. I'll get a billion dollars out on Monday. Obviously not Not it won't be out the door in the in the mail and everything. But I'll allocate it. And it's it can do so much good in the world, yet such a tiny percentage of it is. Now we got half the world's population living on less than two or three bucks a day. That's not who I'm talking to here. Those people, I can I get a pass card. Like you got to survive and you got to take care of your family. And and we have a very unfair stacked system. Money is not equally distributed, and we continue. Those of us that accumulate power. Stack it worse, most most of, of us who do. Mm-hmm. So this is a sickness. This is a moral sickness in my mind. This is not an anti-capitalist statement. Capitalism is a, a very effective system, but what the hell are you going to do with it? How's so it going to you affect sort of, your family? Yeah.
1: Yeah. So I mean, it sounds like you're saying, look, at some point, regardless, you're going to have to intentionalize this pile that you've been blessed with or accumulating, um, intentionalize it some way. Um, because, I mean, you've started so navigate right you, you have your fund, it is intentionalizing capital, it's using some conventional metrics of financial performance and yield. Um, so you are navigating um, the pie, you're, that pie will grow, um and the question that probably constantly comes back to your your group is are we intentionalizing this capital through and through all the way to the founders of these companies? And sort of just teeing it up. One for how do you guys how do you keep that intention out in front of the pile of money? And then yep. two, um sort of take us through a little bit of how that intentionality moves through the system based on the stuff that you are being asked to be responsible for.
0: Okay. So a starting place has to be, I'm a, I'm a pragmatic idealist or an idealistic pragmatist. Uh, The (laughs) world is complex and you've got to like solving problems. You don't just snap your fingers and you don't just pray it into existence in my belief anyway. Um, And, and uh, we need to intervene though. Anyone who has any calling whatsoever for higher purpose and is involved with money. I think has a responsibility to intervene on behalf of what your deepest values and belief systems are to affect things. But affecting things, as I said, pragmatists, like it's a complicated system out in the world, in every system. They're very complicated. Times are getting more and more complex. So the inspiration was... I'd already learned that there were all kinds of fun and meaningful and satisfying ways to make money that actually I could share in mixed company and be proud of. Uh, But I also believed that strategically proving that you could make money but do it in ways that intentionally are moving the bar towards less damage and destruction, more health, more well-being. Money's influencing political systems too, so that's ultimately underneath this. Your, your public policy—you're you, either consciously or unconsciously also stacking the system or working on the system. So, so there is a pathway for a guy to deal with probably human, but particularly male human uh, achievement and self-esteem kinds of you know the only the only successful model that was given to me is become a billionaire i mean by the world yeah the world. Gotcha. Yeah, um, my mother would have liked me to be an artist probably um i hope i am an artist but in different uh, mediums sure so so okay so we're talking this fund which grew out of as you know as a, a, a small but substantive uh, family office effort that was quite unique and and deeply rooted in these this kind of thinking we had been doing investing and we said let's well maybe it's time to see if other people would invest with us we're still talking um, uh 12 14 years ago and there were, impact investing i don't even know if it was called that yet sri was Pretty strong, and there were those of us that were doing uh, seed investing, angel investing, things like that. But the principle of let's find good companies. So we said, okay, let's build. Let's build a product, and it's effectively a teaching tool. Let's say the the underlying part of it is there's a teaching tool, and a set a way to convey a set of principles through our acts, and through how we did things, not really preaching, just. We believe that organic foods and environmental technologies and climate issues and justice issues are going to make or break the future. Um, And there's a whole financial component to all of them. So here's a product that might build a group of people that are going to get affected by it. And so will their families, their friends, their advisors, and their wealth managers. So that's the origin of it, and from there it's it's just an investment fund that carries the values of the team who put it on. Yes.
1: Now, do you look for opportunities? So you have this group of fifty to one hundred people that are investing, uh, you know, now close to two hundred million dollars into your firm. Do you also um, one of the things I'm moved by is actually using so not only bring in their money in house, but are you looking at it as a teaching vehicle so that that network, that the network nodes with that and that network, can actually network. accelerate, amplify, awesome. deepen your intentions as well. So it doesn't feel like you're having to do all the lift, all but the- it's as if a small amount of input into those networks as well will lead to additional climate strategies change that uh, alongside the alongside ones that you're work. making in terms of capital allocation wow. and so forth. So just curious on how you've magnified, I mean, funds are often just talked about as like sort of right as the check and we'll send you a quarterly report, but is there more going on at Renewal Fund to sort of activate the life force? Because you have special human beings for the most part that are part of this group. I know a lot, of, I, I, I know a good amount of them. I know perhaps and these are people that um, hopefully the world looks like, want the world to look like in, you know, 20, or 30 years. So just understanding how you're leveraging the social capitals to sort of go beyond the financial capital.
0: Okay, so the disappointing for you answer to that is we're just creating a model and a learning tool that people are going to get what they do from it. Our language is going to be a bit different, but yeah. not wildly different. Uh, You're going to hear about companies where the bragging about them, of course, we want the financial success, but is about what they're actually doing in the world and why they matter. And we are giving now close to 300 investors a taste that proves that you could do money with consciousness, spirituality, caring. Mm -hmm. Uh, We don't, we don't we don't hit anybody over the head with it we don't preach very hard there the book is the preaching vehicle my, my life work outside the fund is the preach is the preaching and the activism um, but the fund to simply prove that capitalism that, that there are parts of capitalism that could at worst be more benign at worst and at best, are seeding and progressing down a pathway that will lead the next generation to go much further. Like It will become legitimized and normalized. And as you know, and probably listeners on here know, uh, from those 12 years ago when we were trying to explain all of this to almost every single investor, this time when we raised money, from longtime colleagues, we'd go and talk to them in wealth management firms. They'd say, we have 12 impact funds ahead of you in the queue. We won't even get to you. We won't get through the due diligence. We're so sorry. So you of course feel some disappointment about that, but then you go, this is success. Yeah. We didn't, we didn't do it, but we were part of it. And I'm I'm a Tennessean living in Canada. We invest on both sides of the border. We have investors from around the world, charitable foundations, all kinds of different kinds of entities. But we've been the first in a lot of those where they experimented with it. So there's a compounding effect and there's a validation effect. And others these days, there's so much more interesting and exotic, usually small, funds that are working more specifically on justice issues or whatever it is. So if you're going to take on, like you can attack capitalism, that's one approach, but if you can show positive uses of capitalism, um, I believe that's very powerful and not that many of us have been willing to, but those numbers are now growing because people are seeing the models.
1: Sure. Sure. I mean, like, where do you, um, obviously, it takes a fair amount of self-care in order to navigate this path, because it can be a little demoralizing, depressing, um, sharing, you know, the story is easier to tell now than it was 12 years ago, obviously, Um, but then if, you know, you read the news on a daily basis, whether it's the policy or still the business practices that are going on, and um, you guys are... Focus on climate change. I know is a big a, a big issue for you. And you know, how do you sort of navigate this potential crisis with this with the existentialism of just daily living? And like, you get up, you make breakfast, you go for a walk, and then how do you sort of take in and migrate and navigate? Because you can take in a lot of data. You can take in a lot of secular information that's often framed in a dramatic context, just wondering what you do to sort of stay centered, navigate, and just sort of keep the ball sort of rolling.
0: This is where the whole person comes into play. And you can make your own definition of what's a whole person, but the psychological, emotional, and spiritual realms, if you over neglect them, will take you down or mess you up. And it's practical business as well, because you've got to deal with conflict. You've got to deal with uh, disagreement. I guess that's conflict. You've got to deal with uh, maybe terminating somebody or dealing with very tough issues. And if you do not have the resilience of your inner skills to keep you on track and be a kind, fair, thoughtful person, you're going to screw up anyway, but you're going to screw up a lot less and a lot worse. And so lifelong practice of understanding the self and using what are now really a vast encyclopedia of available tools, pick your chakra, pick, pick your, your dimension that you want to work in. And we, who, anybody that's involved in investing has some money and you can afford a therapist and you can afford meditation course and you, whatever it is, like I don't, I'm, a, I'm an eclectician of these things. Uh, I, I like the diversity and complexity, and so I've been the practices I've been involved in usually are like the greatest hits of the 60s, 70s, 80s, <laughs> rather than I'm a landmark person, you know, or or that kind of thing. So, so I really I did a I couldn't have gotten where I was if I had not settled maybe the unhappiness and the unfulfillednesses inside that were confused and neglected if I had not at least gone into that work and found stabilizing, balancing, aspirational, and some belief systems. So in business, you you can be a monster. It is very easy to be a monster. It's very easy to be a huckster, a, a marauder, mm-hmm. um, a, a killer. I, you're probably – our portfolios are probably killing somebody right now. Uh, we're probably poisoning other people's babies. I, I realize I'm s- slightly smiling at this, and the smile is is just bemusement at the human condition that we can segment, that we can go to church. We can go, you know, pray on the weekend and then Monday morning, go right back at it. (laughs) And there's these contradictions don't, they don't, I don't think they give us health. I don't think they make us good parents or things like that, but I can't, how do I know there's 7 billion people. There are probably a lot of them that can handle a lot of contradiction. But what I do know is we're on a pathway that if we don't, Go deeply into the meaning and purpose of life and the dynamics that create how things are. We we're going to kill ourselves off. Science is not going to solve it alone. It takes a lot more than that, and uh, I want to be as constructive and positive, effective meaningful a person, that's, that's my, that's heaven for me. I want to be a great person and do things that matter. And and when I describe to people in a simple way, particularly outside the finance industry, well, how do you pick the companies and things? We want products that actually matter led by people who truly care. It's not complicated
1: yeah hmm well there was a lot there I just sort of want to pause because I mean there's obviously um, a lot there and you, you you bring up a lot around the a idea around. of ecological thinking and feeling um, as a sentient being um, and the siloed and this is this is for another conversation but It's interesting. I think the impact space could benefit by actually looking a lot at the linguistic nature of the categories and how they get reified just through the compulsion to categorize and control and discipline actually may may have only serves us to the extent we understand its figurativeness. But we lose our purpose if we literalize it because we actually start clamping down on phenomena that's alive, which is what I believe when I look at impact investing and catalyzing money, it's like, are we in service of life? And to be in service of life, you have to honor the evolving phenomenology of, of life. And so how do you create an extension or a framework that sort of honors the irascible nature of human uh, human life and natural life? As opposed to sort of trying to lock it down semiotically, which is what often happens. And that's when I go to sleep at these impact conferences. And because they've been appropriated by the disciplinarian kings. And I understand because they get they get pulled in thinking that that's the only way that they the can scale. And I was like, no, you can scale through not taking. It's not about adopting those adopting, tools no. of extraction or the the industry language of extraction and superimposing them on your good intentions, you can also scale through, through narrative. And I really have been a proponent of, I would rather have a great story than another darn category and another good metric. Uh, Because I think that to sort of stay ahead in our evolution is to understand the role of narrative as not a subject object split which is often gives narrative these sort are of, the pejorative position against statistics and and mathematical metrics but it's like but it's no well, if people can't look at the political realm political and point see point that narrative is ruling much more than facts then they are missing the role of collective compulsion being tied to story story is where the belief is belief. stats are like carbohydrates they they it's it's quick energy but it's not, this; it's long-term. And I think you've done a great job of presenting an alternative story, understanding our individual role within the collective story, and also your faith in, and belief in how other membership groups have supported your growth on, at the self-awareness level. So it's not just a Joel Solomon story, but it's like saying, hey, the Threshold people that I was with, the Social Venture Network people that I was with, um, you know, the renewal folks that I'm with, and all the folks up in Vancouver and British Columbia that are crystallizing around this. It's like it's when we see ourselves as a channel to tell our story in a way that, you know, as the saying goes, our story is a better party. It really is. It's a much better party to go to. And um, I really appreciate you coming forward and sort of sharing your story and really challenging us to say, look, we have a good story here. And like let's get this story out. Out. Let's be let's cautious be of interests that are trying to protect their position in the extraction industry. Um and um so I, I really feel uh I really feel a lot of gratitude to you doing this. You obviously don't have to anymore, but your why. Why you're doing it is still alive in you, and I think that's a great inspiration because it can be very easy for the why to slip away because of a lot of, like you say, on a daily issue, there's a lot of stuff that comes up that we have to face, but we have to approach it pragmatically, and, and and you've been very nice on sort of explicating and explaining what your why is. And with that, I'm going to offer you a opportunity, sir, your closing statement on just sort of what's naturally emerging for you as you, know, as you share it in flow.
0: I want to take the opportunity to say this is part of an emerging spiritual evolution. Uh, We're reclaiming things that should be reclaimed and taking responsibility for them. Uh, We need to feminize, inclusivize, and indigenize the global economy. It needs to be for the long term and it needs to include everyone and it needs to balance things. We are the ancestors of what's coming hmm. and, and they are studying us this period. We who had everything, what did you do? And I want to be part of those who tried and gave, gave everything that, that I can to that long-term future, I don't know any other reason to be alive. That's the—that's what's underneath. That's the drive that's underneath this. And there's so many ways to have a good time on the practical plane. Uh, let's do things that matter. It doesn't matter if anybody remembers us, but they will remember the seeds that brought forward enough enlightened human existence that there's a beautiful world for those who come. That's what, that's what it's all about.
1: Thank you, Joel. Thank you you, listeners. Um, Again, this is Gino Borges with the journey to impact series, Um, unpacking the personal side to people's journey to impact investing. We have the past hour have been uh, the fortunate guest of, Joel Solomon, uh, the founder, uh, co-founder of the Renewal Fund up in British Columbia and also author of The Clean Money Revolution. Again, thank you, Joel, and look forward to seeing you in uh, Cortez Island in
0: June. You're a great interviewer. I had a lot of fun. Thanks for having me on. Good deal. Thanks, Joel. Thank you for listening to The Journey to Impact. If you enjoyed this episode, help us spread the word by subscribing to this series on Apple Podcasts and sharing with your friends on your favorite social media platform. For a preview of our previous or upcoming episodes, visit www.poetryofimpact.com.